I was up all night going over this. I went through that list again and again, and I tried to fault it, and I couldn't. Maybe someone's playing a really shitty joke. Right. Right. Except I saw them dig it up. I watched them pull the capsule out of the ground and hand that sealed envelope to my kid. Okay, let me ask you this, son. All these uncircled numbers, what do they mean? I don't know yet. Maybe nothing, but, but the... Or maybe they all mean nothing. Okay, Phil, hey, can we just start over here? I'm not saying that 81 people are going to die tomorrow, okay? I'm just trying to understand why this is saying they will. Okay, it's spooky, all right? I'll grant you, it's more than spooky, but just step back, all right? You have all these uncircled numbers with no sequence to them. I mean, numerology, Kabbalah, Pythagorean cults, there are systems that find meaning in numbers, and they are a dime a dozen. Why? Because people see what they want to see in them. Hey everybody, I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And this is Silver Linings Playback. The pod- Silver Linings Playback! The podcast where we listen to maligned movies. And <laughs> I try to find the silver lining! <laughs> that's the key, right? To be Nick Cage, you just pick like random parts of the sentence to emphasize and yell. Yeah, his, his walk-in, instead of switching punctuation, he just changes tone and volume <laughs> at places that you wouldn't expect. Instead it's of putting fun. commas it, where they don't belong. But it's, yeah, it's a ton of fun. It almost feels like a teacher uh, that their students are like starting to nod off. So it's just like they just throw that in there just to make sure they're still awake. Which he is a teacher in this he movie. Teacher, How about that? Yes. Look at that. He's a teacher. We're, we're just, you know, circling ourselves around and finding, you know, new, new ways to talk about the movies that we're talking about. We got a, we got a doozy, as I usually say. This well, week. Well, I think, you know, we should approach this movie the way that we've been approaching all Nicolas Cage movies this month, which is to say that we... We motorboat the son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so way we do it here. And, and we motorbo- motorboated our way through uh, Amazon Prime and, and found our way to the 2009 Nicolas Cage movie, Knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, which... Largely forgotten about. Ironic. Over the past 11 years. Ironic that knowing is not well known in the yeah. <laughs> subsequent 11 years. And interesting that that's the case. Um, I will say that as this is a, in a rather obscure movie, I would suggest to our many, many listeners out there that if you've not seen this movie, watch it cold without any preconceived notions. Um and then come back and listen to the rest of the podcast because uh, there's some things that you just, I think, have to see for the first time in this movie. That Yeah, I, I think it's inevitable that we're going to have to spoil some of the fun stuff. So yeah, uh, There's no way to talk about this movie because it, it, it does have a lot of twists and turns. There's no way to talk about it without being heavily spoiler laden. So this, this is, I guess, our first official spoiler warning for the podcast. Yeah, so stop listening now if you don't want to have it ruined. So if you need to see the movie, <laughs> turn it off. All right. But Come yeah, th- this movie, all right, you, you've officially been warned. Hopefully everybody listening now went to Amazon Prime. You, you watched it for free uh, or you picked it up off your DVD shelf and watched it again <laughs> to, to refresh your or memory. Like, someone got this for me and then never watched it, but now I will. Do we want to... Out of the gate, do we want to talk about the fact that Roger Ebert loved this movie, or do you want to save that for later? Um, I think I think it's good to put that out there, that Roger Ebert loved, loved, loved this movie. Roger Ebert, whose opinion I respect quite a bit. I would say this and the fact that he hated Usual Suspects are the two most glaring differences of opinion that, that we've had. Um, cause he gave usual suspects one star, mm-hmm. the same rating he gave Garfield, a tale of two kitties. Yeah. Well, I mean, those, those movies are practically the same film. Th- okay. That's fair. Fair is fair. Yeah. I'll, I'll concede that point. Um, but because if you haven't seen Garfield, a tale of two, uh, kitties, it's the story of a detective who's trying to figure out who ate the lasagna 
and Garfield is in his office pretending to be normal the whole time. <laughs> and, and he just drops a mug at the end and it says normal. Yeah. The mug says I hate Mondays on the outside of it, but then when he drops it on the bottom, it says normal. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's great. Some of Bill Murray's best work. Did he even do Garfield's voice in that one? He did. He did. I, I thought think so. he was contractually yeah. obligated. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Ebert, not only did he give this movie four out of four stars, but he ranked it as the his sixth favorite movie of 2009. Yeah. It is, we, it is, um, which I can't remember I what came out in 2009, but I, I have a feeling I could come up with at least seven movies that came out that year that I liked more than this one. I'm sure that's true. I, yeah. I have no doubt. Uh, so I have a theory about this. Okay. Um, and I think it's that he is just a big Alex Proyas fan, the director, because Ebert has gone on, has said many times about how much you love Dark City, which I wholeheartedly agree with because I love Dark City. Dark City is a great movie. movie. Yeah. Um, and he is also the director of Knowing. And I think that it's it's residual love of Dark City because, I mean, this movie is rife with flaws and ridiculous situations that... Uh, we will, I'm sure, recount over the next several minutes. But, you know, maybe even jumping the gun, it is, I think it's a well-directed movie for the most part. Yeah, no, it's well-made. And it. I think, you know, we'll get into it more, but I, I think it, it starts out very strong. I was actually, I texted you when we started, when I started this movie to be like, I, I'm actually really enjoying this. Like, it, it comes out of the gate strong. And I think it's well-made until the end and it has some good special effects uh through to the end but the story itself uh like a certain you know uh subway car in new york in the movie goes off the rails at some point yeah, uh which 100%. i'm sure which i'm sure we'll get it more but maybe let's again the assumption may, maybe you guys all have now watched this hopefully you did because seriously do it it's it's got Rose Byrne in it. It's got uh, Ben you know, Mendelsohn. Ben Mendelsohn. It, it's got a good cast. It's got good special effects. Uh, it's the first movie appearance of Liam Hemsworth. Yeah, there you go. Fun fact. He has two lines. Mm-hmm. Might be his what? best work. I, I can't say that be, it's it not. It probably is his best work. It's, yeah. it's, it's better than Expendables 2. I'll say that much. Oh, God, we're going to have to do that movie on here someday, yeah, aren't we? We might have to do the whole Expendables series. We could do month. an Expendables. Do they, are there four of them? Can we do an Expendables month? There's there's definitely three. Yeah. Okay. Well, there there's you probably, go. Okay. There's probably a fourth. <laughs> okay. All right. But, yeah, so I guess maybe we should. Do we want to set this up a little bit? Like, the assumption is that everyone saw it, but I think we, we need to dive into the plot. So Yeah, this... this, this plot needs to be unpacked so that we can uh, figure out why this movie is maligned and then find the silver linings as we have been doing now for like 700 episodes, I think so. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is we started this year, but we made the mistake of starting in 2020. So that's why right. there's been 700 weeks so far <laughs> since yeah, quarantine started. So, so we keep finding these maligned movies to talk about. Uh, so, I will say, it's, again, it's a little jumping the gun, but the opening scene is great. No, the opening scene, I was in. Like, I I was so, so excited for this movie. I was like, is this movie going to be good? <laughs> um, but it, it opens in 1959, uh, where a class at uh, Dawes Elementary School in Concord, Massachusetts, I believe, um, is making a time capsule that's going to be opened in 50 years in 2009. And uh, all the kids are tasked with drawing a picture of what they think the world is going to look like in 2009. And uh, this little girl, Lucinda, instead of drawing a picture because she doesn't care about the rules, just starts Which, writing numbers. Also, it is noted this was her idea. The teacher says that, that Lucinda came up with the idea for a time capsule and then breaks her own rules. Right. Yeah. Because she doesn't care. She's, she'll make the rules and then break them. Yeah. She's a she's a loose cannon, that Lucinda. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Um, but she just starts scrawling just a seemingly nonsensical list of numbers. Um, and then the teacher 
in a move that seems very true of what teachers probably did in 1959, uh, chastises her for not following directions and then takes the unfinished paper when the child is clearly having stress that needs to get all these numbers out. Yeah, I will point And then I guess we should talk about the fact that then disappears and is found under the bleachers, I believe, like scrawling the rest of in the a, numbers. In a custodian's closet. In a custodian, like, yeah. Scratching the numbers into the door with her fingers until they're like bloody nubs. At which point, I, I expected, because then we jumped forward 50 years, and I really thought we were going to find out that Lucinda had been uh, institutionalized or, or no. She she led a normal life after this. After that, after that huge psychic break. Yeah, she just went about her her days. She had some difficult times, sure, but and this is another weird choice about the movie. So, um, the actress that plays Lucinda also plays Rose Byrne's daughter. It's which the same is actress, Lucinda's granddaughter. So she's playing. Which is Lucinda? She's playing. She. So the same actress that plays the grandmother as a child plays the granddaughter later on. And they used Rose Byrne to, in photographs of Lucinda when she gets older. Yeah. Which just seems like a weird thing to just do and never talk about. Yeah, well, and also, the, we sh- I guess we should say that the actress that plays Lucinda and the granddaughter looks like Rose Byrne. They, they do look like... They do look alike, yeah, yeah definitely. So uh, there's that, which I... I'm okay with, I guess. Like, it, it is weird that it's not addressed, but I I thought the granddaughter thing was fine. It is weird to... You're getting into Marty McFly ancestor territory when you make every single offspring look exactly the same. Right. And, I mean, and that's like a, a lighthearted family romp, and this is supposed to be like a serious, psychological, spiritual thriller. Like, it just seems weird that no mention is made of it at all. Yeah, not even just a throwaway like, wow, you really look like your mother. Like, just right. that probably would have been. That would have been honestly enough. It doesn't deserve like a whole deep dive into why they're the same. It doesn't need to be revealed that they're clones or any sort of like higher conspiracy or anything. But I think it it, it bared mentioning or bared addressing and it didn't get addressed. Yeah. Um. So we cut to Nicolas Cage, um, who is having dinner with his son who reveals while dinner's being cooked that he's a vegetarian because he's a punk. (laughs) (laughs) On a hot dog night, he waits for his dad to cook way too many hot dogs for two people before telling him. Like, they're on the grill. This is a tradition. I Obviously, I am completely fine with this kid uh, deciding to be a vegetarian. However... 100%. However, like... Yeah, I mean, as Nicolas Cage fairly points out, like, you couldn't have told the guy who does the grocery shopping this. Like, I I don't know what he thinks he's going to eat. Yeah. And then the kid's like, I'm telling you now. And it's like, ah. I mean. And Nicolas Cage keeps his cool when, or let me rephrase that. uh, Professor Kessler keeps his cool. I'm sure the real Nicolas Cage would have flown off the handle about this. You come into his castle when he's made you hot dogs and you announce at that moment that you're a vegetarian, Nicolas Cage is going to lose his mind. I mean, come on. He's going to go insane. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's uh, that's just a weird throwaway thing. Like, that's just and again, I think, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to be a vegetarian and to not and to eat a plant based diet. Uh, but at the same time, I think it also is common courtesy to, you know, tell the person that's buying your food and then you're just wasting even more meat and adding to the, the, you know, economic and, you know, environmental footprint that meat provides. So you didn't do any good by going vegetarian in that instance. Well, and to skip ahead a bit, it really didn't seem to make much difference on the impact of earth, uh, this choice, uh, you know, so it didn't, it didn't help. Yeah. it, It was, it was just, uh. And maybe it helped him virtue signal to the whisperers that will maybe maybe <laughs> that's what it is. The strangers uh, were able to say, oh, this kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, made his dad waste another- a bunch of hot dogs. Yeah, that's the kid I want to. This is the kid I want to whisper to. Yeah. But, Never say that a- sentence, by the way. It's not <laughs> an OK sentence in any context. I stand by it. Yeah. Um, 
But that's the other thing is like, so that, that opening scene shows uh, the kid as being rather petulant. Mm-hmm. And then he's like the most well-behaved, respectful kid the rest of the movie. Yeah. And it, I will say, I, I like the scene for Nicolas Cage because I, I feel like their early scenes, like fascinatingly, really established that Nicolas Cage was both a good dad and a good teacher. Yeah. Which I think was important because he spends the next two hours just drinking constantly and saying uh, things that like would concern anyone around him. So I think we needed to start from a place of like, okay, the, well, this is where this guy's at. You know, this guy has his head on straight. He's not like already a nut, and then it's not a chicken little situation. Like this is a guy whose opinion should be trusted. He's a respected that. MIT professor who is friends with the guy who built the Death Star. And, right. Yeah. Like there. Who also was a respected MIT professor. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of um, math building the Death Star. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it takes a ton of math. That's that's an engineering nightmare. Yeah. Like and it's they, round. It moves in space. It you know, just building it alone, something that big, that's big enough to have its own gravity. I mean, that's that's a, that's an undertaking. That's why we needed a whole movie to explore why, like how it got built. That was worth it, and everybody agrees that that was a good movie. um anyways excuse me um so yeah i mean i think it it was good establishing that he was good at his job and everything um i totally lost my point but either way well uh, so oh oh sorry i i was jumping in because you thought you had lost your point but so just to, to continue recapping so so we meet you know we meet our heroes we we get introduced to their world uh, it is now 50 years later that time capsule is coming open. And so his son gets the uh, series of front and back page numbers from uh, Lucinda. And uh, then Nicolas Cage, as he seems to do every night, is sitting around drinking some cocktails, uh, watching, what was it like Animal Planet, I think? It was like Tigers in Trouble was the name of the actual special. Yeah. I don't know why I remember. There's, I, can't, I don't know why I remember that detail. Um, another weird detail about this movie that IMDb's trivia section pointed out is that at no point does he sleep in his own bed in this movie. Oh, okay. Like he's either sleeping on a chair, on a sofa, in his son's bed in a scene later in the movie, uh, but never once in his own bed. Just a weird thing to point out. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. Neither a silver lining nor a reason to malign the movie. Just, just a thing. Yeah. It's in, it's in my head. So now it's in yours. There you go. Uh, so, but he, he's drinking. He spills his drink, and he goes to the kitchen. He sets it down on the piece of paper, uh, and puts a perfect ring around nine eleven. Yeah. Uh, and this is where. This is where you feel a little rumble on the tracks, I feel like, before it totally goes off the rails. I'll say I'm still, like, I kind of, I noted it, and I was like, okay, let's see where we're going. Like, I'm watching now. <laughs> like, But yeah, uh, so he he goes through it. I think it becomes clear later, but it felt fuzzy because in the clip uh, from the beginning where he's talking to Ben Mendelsohn, it's like, pointed out that he's like well if you look at these numbers uh you know they they predicted all these uh you know losses of human life like throughout history and then ben Mendelssohn kind of fairly is like okay but what about all the numbers that you're not paying attention to and it's not at that point made clear how he chose which numbers to ignore it becomes clear later when we find out what those numbers are right um i will say that I still think it's a good choice to have 9-11 be the date. It is. I I saw just when I was like, I was curious when I was like skimming some uh, like of the reviews, some of the user reviews and, and like actual critic reviews. And, and that definitely felt like that. And I mean, this is 2009, so it was closer to 9-11 too. But like that seemed like that was something that upset people. And, you know, had it been more of a focus... It, it might have bothered me, but it also would the story that you were telling in this movie wouldn't it would have been weird to have a, a young girl predict 50 years worth of uh, disasters and not mention that. So, right. Um, and, and the other thing is, 
like 9-11 is one of the only tragedies that's just solely remembered by its date. Well, yeah, and that's the whole thing. He needs to glance at it, see that that's what it is, and then want to dig further. Yeah, it would be a bit fuzzier if it was... I mean, granted, like it is made clear that his wife's death, which we haven't talked about the fact that he he's a widow in the, the movie, uh, her death is one of the dates on there. So it is also, I guess, possible that that could have been the date that he... That's that's the only other option, but I think, like, yeah, he would notice that date, but anybody would notice this this you know nine eleven oh one yeah or zero nine one one oh one like that's if you are alive in the world today that's that's something that you're aware of like yeah uh, uh, so uh, but- I, have, yeah, I, have, I I teach high school history I have yet to have a student not know what I'm talking about when I say 9-11. Plenty of other events that you'd think people would know about that they're unaware of. Still hasn't happened with that one yet. Which is, I I just did the math and realized that you do have students who were born after it happened at this point. I don't have, there's not a single student in my school that was alive for 9-11. Yeah, that is wild, but... uh, Um, I I think pretty soon is going to be kids that uh, were born after Obama was elected, so... Oh, all right. Uh... (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so I'll say that I liked this pitch up until this point. I think the concept was good. Uh, there was another movie that we could very well do on the show that, like, there's the number 23, the Jim Carrey movie. Like, I like the idea of people getting really obsessed with number patterns in a movie. Like, I think that's a cool idea. I even like the idea of, okay, so I'm seeing these patterns and now I need to figure out, okay, the, it's predicting things that are going to happen. And I, I was with the, I'm with Nick Cage for the journey at that point. And then I would say once we hit this point and then it, we switched into the gear of knowing what was coming, th- this is when the movie like... Knowing. I see what you did there. Yeah, I did that on purpose. Uh, but it was kind of... <laughs> It was sort of in this trap of trying to decide, okay, so he knows, again, I keep saying knowing, but like he's aware of these dates. So what happens now? And he stumbles onto the first one, which is a a plane crash that happens practically on top of him. Uh, And then he runs towards the wreckage of the plane uh, and... We have that. Then he goes to New York for the next one because, you know, but that's the other thing, too, that's sort of the the hiccup in. I, well, it's, it's very unclear. We never learn what Lucinda was hoping to accomplish exactly with writing this stuff down, except that she seemed to need to write it down like that, that she was hearing whispers in her head that were convincing her to write this stuff and she had to write it. But, like, why is never really made clear? <laughs> I, I'm going to say I kind of like that they never go into it, that it was just, she just had this compulsion to reveal these, this data. Well, I want to... I was, I, was, I was okay with it left ambiguous. I'm personally. okay with it ambiguous, but I'm teeing up for the fact that when we get to talking about the end of this movie, there is a huge flaw in the ending that I, I'm really trying to, like, I, and I'm not someone who likes, you know, I, I don't like those everything wrong with a movie in right. however many minutes. Like, I really try not to be pedantic, but there was a pretty major plot hole at the end that I will get to that has to do with the the paper. So uh, we'll get there. But uh, yes, yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So ju- just setting that up. But so he, he goes to New York. But the, the problem is that it, it gives coordinates. So, you know, exactly uh, where something's going to happen. You know, the date, you know, how many people are going to die. Doesn't give a time, which seems like that would help uh, if you knew what time. Also, It's made very clear when he goes to New York that, like, having that information, and maybe that's what the title is kind of alluding to, does you no good. Like, (laughs) like it is absolutely not useful information at all. He's very fortunate to not be detained by police at any point. Uh, But he basically just shows up there, almost gets a a guy who stole some Blu-rays killed, (laughs) And then uh, 
I guess saves a pregnant woman, but that doesn't even seem super relevant to the plot the or anything. The movie yeah. Or anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It, we're. I think you know. I don't want to go like beat by beat for this movie necessarily, but that plane crash scene. One fantastic scene for the most part. Looked good. Um, like I said, special effects looked good. Lots of people on fire, like practical fire effects, which is not easy to do. Yeah. Um. I'm going to, I think this is the biggest silver lining of the movie for me. Uh, but Nicolas Cage is just running towards the wreckage, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Both- no, I, it's very unclear what he's trying to accomplish at that point. We're aware that there are EMTs at the scene anyway, because there was a truck crash. So there are people who can help. There's no indication that he has any kind of like medical training. And I would argue based on the CPR we see him do that he has not had any proper medical training he's also trying to move people who are clearly injured yeah the most bananas part is that at one point like when he starts just getting to the wreckage um he passes a guy that's on fire Mm -hmm. and then like stops to ask him directions and seems miffed that the guy isn't paying attention to him yeah it's it's the most um i i texted joel while watching the scene i was like i've never laughed harder at a moment that wasn't intended to be funny in a movie than this moment right here. Um, uh, like my wife came downstairs and was like, what are you watching? <laughs> like, is, like, is this like a common, like, no, it's a very serious Nicolas Cage movie. Um, there was a very like, like anchorman vibe to the way the guy walked by. It reminded me of that scene of like that escalated quickly. Like there was that kind of energy to it. Yeah, there were horses though. and a man on fire, and I <laughs> yeah. killed a guy with a trident. Yeah, it very much felt like that. Like I, if you could have done that with Nicolas Cage and Ben Mendelsohn after that of him explaining, which I imagine is about how that conversation would have went. So you were there for the plane crash. <laughs> Um, and anyways, so at this point, this is when he realizes, uh, what the other numbers mean. And I, I want to nitpick this cause I feel like Nicolas Cage's character was established as smart enough that he would have known those things. Well, especially because he's able to see the pattern. He is an MIT professor. It seems weird that he wouldn't have tried GPS coordinates like that. That wouldn't have occurred to him. Right, that um, just the fact that, like, the only reason he was able to crack this code, and again, we've talked a few times about ridiculous code-cracking scenes in movies, uh, most notably last week when we talked about National Treasure. Right. Uh, but, like, he just happens to see the court, the, the latitude-longitude coordinates for uh, the plane crash and stuff, and that's when he realizes that all the numbers are the geographic coordinates for these events. No way does he not. No way does he not spend time trying to figure out what those other numbers are, and no way does he not test that hypothesis given everything we know about his character. Yeah, it, it kind of would have made more sense. Like that was the problem: is they they introduced him as very smart. He works for MIT as a professor. He has another friend who's also an MIT professor. At no point is there a scene where they're like thinking through it everything that he figures out he figures out by accident you know he's stuck in traffic so the gps he looks at his gps and that's how it occurs to him he puts his drink down on the thing like yeah there should have been more like you know do a couple of like ben mendelson doesn't believe him but he's like okay well just to entertain it let's try to see if we can figure because i would believe like maybe he didn't figure it out the night before <laughs> like he was busy piecing together what all the things were but maybe they maybe he's just like, you know what, just to like get you to stop with this. Like, let, let's look at the numbers. Let's see if, let's see if we can. F- let's let me prove to you that these the rest of these numbers don't make sense. Yeah. And, and then, that's how they stumble onto the. And then like they try a couple of things that aren't the right thing. And he's like, wait a second, GPS. And then it turns out that like and then that because that would have made sense, too, because part of the problem, too, is there was never a moment where like we saw that Ben Mendelsohn, who was rightfully skeptic skeptical of it was like ever properly convinced of it except that it became very clear by the end that it was right uh but that might have helped the cause if he i would say too just as a note because again we're not going to go point by point i felt like there was a lot of stuff set up in the beginning that was then just abandoned that like could have 
made more sense, you know, could have paid off better. And then it just didn't. It, a lot of stuff just fizzled out by the end. Yeah, this is not something I think I ever really say, but I think this would have been a better series, like a limited series, like a one season yeah. series. Although then yeah. by the end, it would have. I, well, if I had watched up. a whole season uh, and then gotten that ending, I would not have been happy. Um, but I feel like they could have earned it a little bit better. Although maybe. actually, maybe it was. It's entirely possible that it was made into a series and that series was called The Flare. And then <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was actually the basis for, what was it, Watch What Happens Live? Or What Just Happened Live. What Just Happened, yeah. Yeah, that Fred Savage, like fake uh talk show so then we did it so it was the flare was that was the limited series was explaining there you go we figured it out um so the only other i think so obviously nicholas cage starts losing his mind he delves into the history of the girl that wrote this lucinda that's how he finds rose Byrne. which um sorry i know we're not going beat by beat but i i cannot just breeze past him meeting rose Byrne because this is of all the bad plans, one of the all-time worst way like what you have to say to her is not like it's gonna be a tough sell. So so he's he's tracking her down because he's gotta tell her, I need more information about your mother. So I like and she had a letter that predicted all of the tragedies, including one that's about to happen. That's a lot to throw at someone. And so what he does to to open up you know to ice break to get to this point is he follows her from her house to a museum then orchestrates a meeting between their children and then goes over to her while the kids are talking to be like hey looks like our kids are friends now we should also all go get drinks together and hang out since they're clearly having so much fun together which like works and is like okay this seems like this was good if you were trying to date her i guess like it's manipulative and creepy but like it's she feels no comfortable with manipulative you and creepy than any romantic comedy ever yeah so. and now she feels comfortable with you and then she's sitting with you at, with the drink your kids are played and then immediately goes to look i should probably say i actually made all this up it's a lie and uh, i have a letter from your mom and it's predicting tragedies and uh like and she of course gets up and is like okay we're going i gotta get out of here like which is the right move because that's a lot and not a good way to do any of that because he even makes it clear he's like this wasn't a chance meeting and then it's like well okay she had to have gone home and been like, well, how did he know I was going to be there? This guy was fine. Like everything, once it connects is like, that's so not okay that you did any of that. Right. It would have, it would have been maybe not cinematically better, but actually better if he just went to her house or called her on the phone yeah. and explained the situation. Yeah. And even if like, I mean, it still wouldn't have been okay, but if he had tried that first and then she shut him down and then he because she blew him off the first time then like goes to her work or something or like doesn't like or, it, or even does the the museum thing or does says. the museum thing like whatever like it, it would have made more sense as a second <laughs> contact second, something anything which yeah. is still not okay but at least like again his justification is like i i'm trying to figure this out because like global stakes you know like this is important uh but yeah all of that is a lot to just throw on there. So I didn't want to like just go too far past that. She eventually comes around. It's flimsy, but it, it seems to be made clear that she was told by her mom that she would die on the date in the letter. And she's been trying to avoid that. So therefore that's why she's like, okay, like, I guess I have to deal with this thing. Cause I've been trying to ignore it, but here you are. So we get that. Uh, we, uh, again, we, <laughs> I could, apparently this could be a two hour podcast. Cause I feel like we're going to not be able to say everything we wanted to say, but I, I guess we need to skip by the subway thing. Do we, do we need to, there's a really great subway crash. Um, it's a cool action scene. I think that's all we need to say about it as yeah. far as, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it looks cool. There's a lot of like, you know, uh, anyway, so then we find out what this has all been building to. There's uh, the sun is going to explode 
burn everyone i guess that's the, that's the way i understood it it was Basically probably a solar flare is gonna fry the earth yeah uh and so i wrote down because we get the amazing line delivered from nick cage the cage won't save us he he tells us that because rose burns plan is to hide in caves uh which is not gonna work his only plan He's trying to figure out the part that uh, her mother never got a chance to write, the end, which would be the coordinates of where to go for the solar flare. Rose Burns then pays him back for, for stalking her to a museum by kidnapping his child when he's in a gas station and <laughs> drives off with him, uh, which leads to her death, uh, as foretold. Uh, yep. which is a, her death is a little hat on a hat considering uh, everyone is about to die on earth, but she dies in a car accident first. Right. And then um, the other thing, the only other big thing that we haven't talked about is the, uh, the, the strangers or the whispers or whatever you want to call them. We hinted at them, but yeah, we've we mentioned them. Uh, but throughout the movie, there are these uh, all dressed in black, pale face individuals um, that if they were bald would be very much like the strangers from dark city. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is just an Alex Proyas thing. I think it's a window into his anxiety. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I got from it. But, yeah. um, but they keep showing up and specifically targeting the, the younger children, um, Caleb and they can just son and, uh, I don't, yeah. Abby is her name. Abby. I, that sounds right. But they also, they can talk to them telepathically, but right. Also, I don't know. We don't have time, but it seems to be that it's telepathically. But then there is a note at one point that he doesn't hear what they say because of his Caleb's hearing issues, which we haven't really talked about. But that doesn't really make sense if it's telepathically. Yeah, it's fine. But, you know, well, our little error counter up in the corner dinged. So yeah, <laughs> we're going to we're going to move on. Um, so, yeah, so. uh Eventually, they um, they realize that or Nick Cage finds the door that she that Lucinda had scrawled everything in, finds the coordinates. It's the coordinates of Roseburn's ho parents' house that they grew up in, the trailer in the middle of the woods. Uh, and then the strangers take the kids on their spaceships and the world blows up. And that's the movie. And the world blows up for a good 10 minutes like i i really thought uh we were doing like arm the end of armageddon uh with spoiler for that movie i guess too but you know like we were doing the the older person is gonna stay behind and be sacrificed in the global apocalypse you know uh right. so that the younger people may live uh and i i would have expected the credits to roll as the spaceship is taking off but no, instead we get 10 minutes of everything on Earth exploding. And including like Nicholas Cage driving by Ben Mendelsohn and them sharing si sad sharing eye contact with each other. Sharing a knowing glance. A knowing sad glance. Uh, but yeah, as they kind of roll by. Uh, and then uh, I think the ending was like, it felt a little culty, if I'm being honest. The kids were wearing white shirts they were in a field and it turned out Nicolas Cage in the end, like, uh, you know, went to see his dad who was religious, who he had had a falling out with. There was there was a very odd left turn at the end that was like, you know, almost made it feel like this was secretly a movie made for some kind of like religious cult or something like that, well, like yeah. snuck up on us. It definitely heavily hints that Caleb and Abby are like the Adam and Eve that are going to yeah. start the next civilization. Which I hated. Uh, yeah, it was bad. It was that's dumb. a terrible. Yeah, because there's literally a tree and they're in a field and they're wearing white shirts. And the and because also the aliens pick them up and then just drop them off. And there was the snake selling apple, so it all makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so all of that happens. Uh, well, and okay. the strangers are revealed to basically be angels, essentially. Like yeah. their natural form was sort of these luminous things that sort of looked like they had wings. That's what like I'm saying. The, the end gets weirdly religious in a way I did not expect. Like all of a sudden when it hadn't really been, you know, like you would expect 
there would have been more conversations with Nick, you know, some sort of almost like lost or something like that of like man of science versus man of faith. Like that, that would have been the arc for Nicolas Cage about not believing, but it's such an afterthought until the end. And then the end is nothing but like religious imagery and, uh, you know, all of that, which is, it was very jarring to be like, what? That's what we were doing this whole time? Like, okay. Which, again, I'm not bad-mouthing. There's a lot of stuff that I like that, that delves into similar territory. It just didn't feel like that's what this movie was until it suddenly decided to be that. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a weird turn because it wasn't like... It's a throwaway scene with Nick Cage and his sister that mentions that their father's a priest. Which is a bad scene. It's so not like it is the clunkiest scene in the whole movie. It is Be- such an exposition dump that, again, probably supports that this this could have been a, like a miniseries, like a seven or eight episode thing. Well, and it was they so could have, like explored a lot of this more. It was so weird because she I forget. What, I wish I had written down her exact line, but she has a line that is just like. So you're not okay with being the son of a pastor? And it was like, what? Like, why would your sister... Like, one, she would know that. You guys would have talked about this before. But why? That's how she phrases this in an organic conversation with her brother about their dad. Like, there's not any other way like you couldn't have just had a more casual like you know he still holds out hope that you'll show up on Sundays to hear his sermon like that might have been a sentence that would have sounded like a thing a sister would have said to her brother not like uh no the uh the line that she said I remember it was uh the only one that could ever reach me is the son of a preacher man yeah is the line (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, all right. But we are, God, this podcast is going to be long and I apologize for that. But, uh, before we can get to the silver linings, I do need to talk about what I teased before, which is that, so when we get to this ending, okay. So this whole movie, Lucinda at the beginning, she's writing the stuff down on a piece of paper. She, she has this urge to get it out there. It gets to Nicolas Cage, which feels like it, that was what was supposed to happen. This is all preordained. There's a whole conversation about, whether the world is random or whether like everything uh, happens for a reason. And then, so it does. And so he's able to figure it out and he cracks the code and he doesn't listen to Rose Byrne who tries to kidnap their kids. And instead he still believes and he goes on faith to this location. And then when he gets there, the kids are already there because the, the whispers have rounded them up on their own from Rose Byrne and then he's told that he can't go with them. He's being left behind, which means everything we have seen for two hours is pointless, that it, none of it mattered. He didn't need to crack this code. His kids would have ended up there no matter what. Like, what, like, what a stupid ending that, like, you made everything not matter because he didn't... Like, if he had brought the kids there... It would have made sense. And then the the like the aliens could have been like, oh, OK, you got our kids there. Like You got the kids there. You got our message. That's how we knew the, we had to test to make sure you were the right people. But the fact that you figured it out, they get to go on the spaceship, but you can't go. That would have still worked. But you negated that. You they the kids were always going to get there. They had been identified. The people were watching. They were going to make sure they were there. None of the code mattered at all or needed to happen or the the time capsule or any of it. It was all a giant waste of time. Yeah, that's um, not the point I thought you were going to make. Is that I thought you were going to make a point that instead of writing out the population of the world that's going to expire. (laughs) uh, Which is what they did, like the 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 code, whatever you want to call it, it was um, the date, the number of people that died and then the geographic coordinates. Uh, but instead of writing the, the number of people that died in this last solar flare tragedy, uh, they, she just writes EE, everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, we, all of it. But it's all so dumb. It turns out that the code is nothing. Like, it's a giant waste of our time. Yeah. If, it, it, I mean, it sort of made the sense that... Um, that Alex Proyas, the writers, whoever, uh, were maybe anti-deterministic and that everything was random. But it wasn't random because it was predicting, like 50 years ago, she was able to accurately predict everything that was going to happen. It just, like, 
Yeah, I I don't know. I really can't unwrap it. We don't have time to unwrap it. It just like it's not a good thing when like the thing that hooked me, the thing that I was very excited about from the opening scene, which is great, which might be the best part of the whole movie is that opening scene to then be like, this didn't matter. You could actually cut all of the number stuff out of it. It could just be a movie about Nicolas Cage is a dad and there's weird people in the woods who are stalking his kid and he's trying to figure out why. And then it turns out those people are actually trying to save him. That might actually be a better movie. And that seems to be the movie that you were making. And you could still do it. Like, it just, I don't know. It really bummed me out because I was like, I was into the concept. And that's, I mean, the movie's called Knowing. and it, But Knowing didn't matter. Matter, but not even in a way that was interesting. Like Right. That Or if they like maybe established that the the angels or the whispers the strangers whatever you want to call them like perceive time differently yeah so you know that they knew that's why they knew this stuff not like maybe if they took a strong like anti-determinate like a more fatalistic like anti-determinist thing is that no they're just they know all this stuff but yeah everything is is happens and there's nothing you can do about i don't know um but that's the movie uh, you've watched it. We've recapped it in probably the greatest detail because this movie is bananas. Yeah, it's it's I mean, look, so we're at the silver line and we're already kind of running low on time. I, I think it's pretty clear like it's it was a journey. I mean, the silver lining is the the friends we made along the way. Like we <laughs> it was fun. Like I I was not bored. Like I was you know, I was curious where we were going. I was baffled by a lot of it. Uh, but it it was, you know, I think you said it uh, when you were texting me before we did this, that like, I think when we conceived of doing a Nicolas Cage month, like, isn't this what you want from a Nicolas Cage movie? Like, this is the Nicolas Cageiest of movies. Like, it's... It's all over the place. Some of it's good. Some of it's really bad. That's Nicolas it's Cage in a nutshell. <laughs> like, <laughs> random changes in tone that don't seem to make sense. Yeah. To the people making it. Yeah. Sometimes it gets way louder. Sometimes it's really beautiful and poignant. You don't know what you're in for. Like it's. Yeah, I know. I mean, why did we spend 10 minutes at the end of the movie watching the world blow up? Because why not? You know, like there's a crazy like airplane scene that all of the money must have gone to that like wasn't it didn't need to have all that like it could have been a thing he saw on tv he didn't need to be there for the airplane sequence but he is and he almost dies and he walks by a guy on fire and has a conversation with him like and he pulls a, a girl on fire out of a play out of some of the wreck it's yeah. This movie is bananas. Also, he spends two hours saving people from wreckage only to have all of those people die at the end, like unequivocally. <laughs> so he saved them for a few days at most. They had probably a few days of horrible pain and injury. Yeah, like where they were traumatized and not okay. It's honestly cruel. It's probably cruel that he didn't just let them die swiftly, you know. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's great. He shouted, the caves won't save us. Like that was good. I'm, I needed that to happen. Yeah. It's, um, I, I mean, I think that talking about the silver line, I, there's no way you can talk about the silver lining without going through how just nuts this movie is. Yeah. Um, the only other things I will point out, cause we usually get to some of the minutia about the silver lining, uh, Marco Beltrami's score, I thought was fantastic. Mm hmm. Yeah, I thought the good. score was great. Um, and um, his isn't a name I knew, but then when I looked at the a lot of the stuff he scored, it's music I've definitely heard. He did, did most of the Scream movies, a lot of horror, um, and a lot of just movies, kind of a really wide stretch of scores. So um, yeah, the score is, I think, worth mentioning as, as a really good part of this movie. But I think the ultimate silver lining is that if you want... Think think in your head of what a Nicolas Cage movie is, or if if Nicolas Cage were a movie. Yeah. This is that movie. Yeah, no, for sure. And and again, like um just a we kind of like I love that Ben Mendelssohn was in this. I love that Rose Byrne was in this. Uh no, it it was a, a journey. The special effects were good, the the carnage was good if yeah. you're into that stuff. The child actors I thought did really good jobs. You know, it's it's I thought yeah. they were, you know, they're 
like 10 and that's you know uh it's a funny note i think with everything else but i do think a a silver lining that's worth mentioning too is i i like the fact that his son had you know a hearing uh problem like a hearing he wasn't deaf but he he it was like an auditory processing disorder he had an auditory processing disorder he needed to wear a hearing aid and i like that that was just a part of his character it wasn't really you know like it, it didn't save him it wasn't like a special power it was just like a disability that was featured in a movie just because you know like that was which almost which almost never happens yeah it was this and breaking bad i think are the only times that's ever happened so uh you know so that was nice i i like seeing stuff like stuck on you and stuck on you obviously uh but yeah well fargo actually the fargo tv show does a lot of that which is nice uh so i did appreciate that um yeah and also just what a what a fun ride and i think if this movie was a line from a Nicolas Cage movie, it would be We motorboat the son of a bitch. Because <laughs> I think that was their approach to the screenplay. They motorboated the screenplay for sure. It could not have been more motorboated if it tried. <laughs> so I, I think we did it. No, we definitely did it. Um, if you didn't stop to watch this movie, I feel bad that we spoiled it for you because you should have watched this movie. Um, even still watch the movie because there's things we didn't talk about that we could have. I would argue uh, that even though we gave away, definitely I was glad to know nothing about it going in, but I would say that even with everything we've given you, it's still way w- wilder than you think <laughs> and worth yeah. worth watching. <laughs> all, all I knew was that it was about like predicting tragic events and there was some like Christian stuff at the end. That's what I, I, I knew. I didn't even know that. I, I and knew, I only, I, and I only knew because I remembered it from Ebert's review, where he kind of mentions that there's some theological stuff that the movie, and he, I guess he, he really liked that part of it too. But either way, um, we definitely got the silver lining. This is, uh, this is the if Nicolas Cage were a movie, even though isn't he playing himself in something that's coming out soon? I think so. That does actually sound familiar. I don't. But either way, no way is that going to be as Nicolas Cage as this movie is. The only this other movie the- that, that comes to mind that might be close is Face Off, is if Nicolas Cage was a movie. <laughs> that's, that's the other choice. But yeah. this, one, this one sneaks up on you the way like a good and terrible Nicolas Cage performance can sneak up on you. <laughs> All right. Well, we did it. We, we continue to be undefeated. Uh, hopefully you guys watched the movie and enjoyed it. And remember... The caves won't save us. Silver Linings Playback is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. Hey, this is Chris. And this is Joe from the Curioso Podcast. And we give our stamp of Curioso approval to the podcast that you're listening to right now.